Welcome to Rebel Roundup, ladies and gentlemen, and the rest of you, in which we look back at some of the very best commentaries of the week by your favorite Rebels. I'm your host, David Menzies. Well, the Emergencies Act inquiry continues to soldier along, and what a week of dramatic testimony from lawyer Brendan Miller being escorted out by security to certain Liberal cabinet ministers allegedly joking about sending in tanks to disperse the demonstrators? Oh yeah, what a knee slapper. Rebel News Chief Reporter Sheila Gunn-Reed has all the nitty-gritty details. And Tamara Ugolini flew all the way to Berlin, Germany to take in the World Health Summit. And while she was there, she came across a frontline doctor who knew the response to COVID-19 would cause harm, but alas, he chose to remain silent. Tamara has all the details and letters. We get your letters. We get your letters every minute of every day. And you had plenty to say about those three Chinese police stations allegedly operating in the greater Toronto area. But when it comes to our politicians and law enforcement personnel, this is apparently a matter of nothing to see here, folks. Move along, move along. We visited the Chinese consulate in Toronto. We didn't get any answers there either. Unbelievable. In any event, those are your rebels. Now let's round them up. that we sought this or are you talking about the one where he says that okay. the processors could have I been treated it. differently if they were black or indigenous or is this something else right no this is a lametti text from january 30th i said it's something else and boy was it ever he wanted to use the emergencies act as early as 1.5 days into the convoy and he was indicating he would treat the protest differently based on race so what he said was do we have contingency for these trucks to be removed tomorrow mm. or tuesday and then he puts in black brackets if they were black or indigenous dot 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 meaning should we consider treating them differently because they aren't black or indigenous as opposed to our approach to indigenous led however i wouldn't say it's indigenous protests mm-hmm. um blocking rail lines or sabotaging pipelines or i don't know maybe we need a minister to come out and take a knee with them the way justin trudeau did with the blm um marches so this is what he's saying he says what's the normative authority do we have or is some order needed question mark ea question mark so that's january 30th like the sun had set on one day of convoy protests mm-hmm. and he's like drop the hammer war measures these people yeah no it was very well it was very surprising to to hear that it was very funny when i was sitting in the room and i read that so he clarified afterwards what he meant by that he meant oh, that he, he understands <laughs> he understands that there is issue that there are issues of so-called systemic racism in the police forces and in the justice system and that had it been a black or indigenous protest he was wondering if those people would have been treated more harshly and differently than the people at the convoy. That's a stupid thing. We know they weren't. And I recall the police beating down. I I recall RCMP horses trampling two indigenous protesters. I recall the police arresting a Métis grandmother from Alberta for peacefully protesting. So I don't think that these text messages make that much sense. I think it's pretty funny, honestly. When you think that those are the people in our government, I think it's pretty funny. Yeah, he's literally suggesting maybe we should look at this through a race lens instead of applying the rule of the law 
uh, equally. He also said at one point he he called them protesters and he immediately corrected himself. And he said, yeah. I don't want to call them protesters because this was unlawful. Mm-hmm. And as we heard, it was never declared unlawful. Um, the riot act was never invoked. None of that happened. And he should know better because he's the justice minister. And we can read ahead. Um, on February 4th, he's got text messages again. So this is, I don't know, approximately four days later, five days later, still pushing the Emergencies Act. And I said, is it any wonder that his department then advised CSIS that the standard to invoke the EA was not CSIS Section 2, which CSIS said it never met. So on February 4th, he says, I believe the angle is incoming the Emergencies Act. So... It, from the very beginning days, that was always going to be the outcome. They just needed to wait long enough to do it so they could, you know, at least have the cover of time saying, oh, these things were so dangerous. They were never mm-hmm. going to resolve. And so what were we supposed to do after three plus three weeks almost? Yeah, well, you know, we, we hear different witnesses say their account of when they think that the Emergency Act was first discussed. Some people said that it was the day prior to the invocation. Some people said it was the day of the invocation. People said it was a week before. And they all swore under oath that they would tell the truth. So I'm inclined to think that it's just incompetence or ignorance that they don't know exactly when it was actually discussed firmly for the first time because otherwise they would be, they would be lying under oath but i find it very funny to see that you know david lamedi here said that it was one of the uh, first options he thought of marco mendicino in a press conference said that the emergency act was something that he thought about invoking since day one other I think individuals bill blair said that bill blair told global news from day one oh, it was it was it was, it was bill blair then it wasn't marco mendicino and other witnesses said that it was later on there's a lot of inconsistency within within this whole inquiry. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of them. Something particularly stomach churning about watching these snakes, and I, I've tweeted the word snakes so many times. I'm just using the emoji at this point. Watching these snakes put their hand on a Bible and swear, mm. and then lie, just literally lie through their teeth. Um, yeah. But the, I think this is the worst one, and this it was a two snake tweet from me. Um, Public safety minister, and and so Marco Mendicino and David Lametti, the justice minister, they're talking about deploying tanks to the streets of Ottawa on February 2nd. So what are we, four days, four and a half days into the protest at this point? Mm-hmm. They were going to d- deploy tanks as early as February 2nd. So the text messages read, you need to get the police to move. What do you mean? I thought the government, federal government couldn't direct police like they're, the police act at arm's length. So what does this mean, guys? Anyways, keep going. And if the CAF, that's the Canadian Armed Forces, if necessary, too many people are being seriously adversely impacted by what is an occupation. I'm getting out as soon as I can. People are looking to us, you for leadership and not stupid people, people like Carney, Kath, my team. Dot, dot, dot. So I wonder if he means Mark Carney, stupid. Is that Catherine McKenna, the former environment minister who used to be in Ottawa MP? Yeah. Is he calling her stupid? Is he calling his team stupid? No, but it, it, it's all it's it I might a, agree a with him for and- once. Wow. Talk about tanks for the memories. Yet more shocking testimony emerged at the Emergencies Act inquiry in Ottawa earlier this week. When it was revealed that Justice Minister David Lametti sent a text to Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino 
urging him to call in the Canadian Armed Forces to put down peaceful protesters at the Freedom Convoy. And that was on day five. Here's what Lametti texted to Pinocchio, or I mean Mendicino, quote, you need to get the police to move and the CAF if necessary. Too many people are being seriously adversely impacted by what is an occupation, end quote, replied Mendicino, quote, how many tanks are you asking for? I just want to ask Defense Minister Anita Anand how many we've got on hand, end quote. Well, on the plus side, let's be grateful that these two wannabe field marshals didn't consider sending in the snowbirds to douse the Freedom Convoy demonstrators with napalm. I guess they might have been a little concerned about the carbon footprint that would have been left behind with that procedure. Unbelievable. And now with her thoughts on this disturbing matter is Rebel News chief reporter Sheila Gunn-Reed. Hey there, Sheila. How you doing? Oh, I'm great, David. It's snake week down at the Public <laughs> Order Emergency Commission. Bunch of lying snakes these people are. Um, I'm, I'm so glad you started off the show with the um, text message about the tanks. Because we've heard that that was a poor attempt at humor. Yeah, real poor. Uh, joking about Tiananmen squaring peaceful protesters in Canada's nation's capital. That's not a great joke. Now, that's how um, David Lametti and... Um, his counterpart, um, Marco Mendicino, sort of shrugged that off. They said, oh, it's it's just a joke. Now I'm not sure it is a joke. But either way, these are horrible people who have no business near the levers of power in this country. Because if you are a cabinet minister who looks at bounty castles and hot tubs and little kids playing street hockey and, and thinks, you know what? Time to send in the tanks. We need to tank man these people. <laughs> you're a horrible person. But likewise, if you're joking, if you're joking about tank manning people in the nation's capital, if, if you think that's funny, you're also a horrible person. So you know what, David Lametti? It's dealer's choice. What kind of horrible person that shouldn't be near the levers of power are you? I'll let you choose um, because my mind is already made up. Well, Sheila, on that point about uh, Lametti and Mendicino saying, oh, it's just a joke. It was just joking banter on those text messages. Two things, Sheila. One, I love jokes. I love comedians. But where is the punchline? I mean, Tiananmen Square is not a knee slapper event in history when it comes to humor. Secondly, in the cancel culture in which we live, even those professionally employed to be jokesters, i.e. stand-up comedians, face cancellation if their joke offends a certain group or the woke mob goes on a rampage. So what I'm saying is that that line, that old chestnut, I was just joking, it really doesn't work in this day and age. No, I mean, who's the punchline? We're the punchline, David. Yeah. All of us are because these are the people in charge. And frankly, I don't think it was a joke. I think they wanted one tank as a show of force, as intimidation five days into the protest. And there's another side note in all of this. So we have heard repeatedly here in Alberta um, that when our premier began asking for access to Canadian Armed Forces heavy haul equipment 
because, you know, a tank hits the ditch. You got to get it out of the ditch. <laughs> You've got big, large equipment. You have to be able to move it around. You have to have the ability to put it on a trailer and haul it away. And you do have to trailer these things because largely they are four by four. So we know that equipment exists. In fact, I've heard that people from the government went up to CFB Edmonton, which is a straight shot out of downtown Edmonton, and laid eyes upon the equipment themselves. So they knew it was there. And then when they requested access to that equipment to help dissipate the Coots blockade from the federal government, first the federal government said, there's no equipment there. And then they said, oh, there's equipment there. We just, we don't have any to spare for you is what Anita Anand said. Now, Bill Blair said, we just don't have the equipment. Anita Anand said, oh, we have it, but we don't have it to spare. Plus, we don't want to be seen to be deploying the military to these places. And the reason Alberta went hat in hand to the federal government looking for access to that equipment was because they couldn't get tow trucks to come from basically the entire northwestern part of the continent. Nobody wanted to get involved or they were supportive of the convoy blockade at Coots. Now, all that is to say, none of it was necessary um, or uh, would be the catalyst for invoking the Emergencies Act because Alberta figured out pretty darn fast that the feds weren't going to help them. So they just went and bought their own tow equipment. And in fact, the convoy blockade at Coots resolved before they even really needed to use it. I think they needed to move three pieces of equipment that were sort of left behind there. I don't know if they ran out of diesel or what. But for me as an Albertan watching this, I'm thinking these snakes wanted to use a tank to intimidate peaceful protesters in the nation's capital, and they couldn't even let Alberta use any of the CAF heavy haul equipment here in Alberta to dissipate the Coots blockade. So I guess to answer your question, who's the joke or who's the punchline in this joke? It's Alberta. It's always Alberta. In fact, there were text messages um, between the senior cabinet ministers saying, you know what we should do? we should publish Alberta's request for help, um, <laughs> both to embarrass Premier Kenny and to say, look, Alber even Alberta's asking for help, so we need to use the EA. Well, I would Snakes. say you don't have to uh, embarrass Premier Kenny, uh, then Premier Kenny. He does a great job of it on his own accord, Sheila. Uh, but that's yesterday's man. Um, Sheila, I should point out to our viewers, uh, tonight's edition of Rebel Roundup is a pre-tape uh, from Thursday. So we haven't seen what Justin Trudeau has said uh, at um, you know, his testimony at the Emergencies Act inquiry uh, scheduled for Friday. I can uh, only imagine. But Having said that, looking back at the last four days, including today, is there anything else that stood out as a jaw-dropping moment uh, aside from sending the tanks to deal with the hot tubs and bouncy castles? Like I said, it was snake week down at the Public <laughs> Order Emergency Commission. We had uh, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, who is yep. the forward face of invoking the Emergencies Act. Um, her notes... Uh, were atrocious, by the way. Her penmanship is as manic as her body language. <laughs> like, just, it's horrible. Um, but her notes, uh, she said, give banks a list of mischief makers. So for a bunch of people who cry about fascism, 
This is actual fascism, by mm. the way, uh, using the banks and the corporate structures to enforce the will of the government on political opponents. That sounds a lot like uh, fascism. Um, and uh, then taking a page from former Iranian dictator uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, Freeland's notes also indicated that there was a government desire to label the peaceful convoy as actual terrorists, like label them akin to, uh, well, I was going to say the IRGC, but that's not a thing, but, but like um, Hamas or Al-Qaeda. Yeah. That was on the list of things that she wanted to do, which ultimately, I guess, explains the counterterrorism law they eventually invoked on them. And Freeland's notes, this was a real sort of... Um, it, it, the lawyer sort of breezed through this, but I would have stopped and lingered on this for quite some time because that little uh, lying gnome, uh, Omar al-Jabra, yesterday, he kept saying, oh, but 90% of the truckers are vaccinated. So this really wasn't an issue when we imposed the cross-border vaccine mandate. I guess, you know, you can just stomp all over the rights of 10% of the people, I guess. Uh, according to Omar al-Jabra, individual rights are, I, I guess, for collective groups and not for individuals. It's a weird stance to take. But um, Freeland's notes directly contradict that. So Freeland's notes uh, say that they knew it was more like 30 to 50% of the truckers that were unvaccinated. So they knew that this one cross-border vaccine mandate had the potential to hit one in two truckers in that go across the border in this country. And the, and again, from Freeland's notes, the CEO of Stelco, that's the steel company, Alan Kestenbaum, he told her to back off of this vaccine mandate because it's unscientific and doesn't even work. And I forgot until just now that I should check to see if Stelco ever had a vaccine mandate of his own. Was he telling the government to back off of a vaccine mandate while imposing his own on his workers? I'm not sure, but he is right that it was unscientific and didn't work. And when that didn't work, he tried to appeal to her political um, self-preservation side. He told her that, look, Christia, honey baby doll face, if you continue to do this, it's actually going to inflame opposition against you. He said it could create a resurgence of the right wing um, the way we see in the United States. And I'm not I'm not sure if it created a resurgence of the right wing, but it sure did help convince a bunch of people that the Liberal Party left them behind, didn't it? Oh, 100%. Sheila. And, you know, I thought uh, Freeland was being very disingenuous. She was talking about the economic da damage to the nation with the bridge being closed down in terms of the supply chain uh, movement. But the Ambassador Bridge had already been opened. Doug Ford used his yeah. version of the Emergencies Act. So that was so much uh, BS. She talks about economic damage, um, Sheila. Let's not forget the reason for the Freedom Convoy. We're looking at people that lost their jobs, their livelihoods, their businesses, their houses because of the COVID lockdowns. And they were rendered destitute. They were desperate. That was not the result of domestic terrorists. That was the result of the federal government and the provincial governments and so on. It was government that was doing the economic terrorism, was it not? Yes. And moreover to Freeland's notes, she was willing to put one in 
two cross-border truckers potentially out of work. So to hear this woman prattle on and shake her head about economic uh, carnage, she was willing to inflict it on people because they were not doing what the government wanted them to do, and yeah. that was to stick an un- or an ineffective medicine in their arm against their will. And by the way, uh, Sheila, what, since when have the Justin Trudeau liberals been all that hard on terrorists? They call people doing a peaceful protest on Wellington Street. Uh, they want to label them as terrorists. But we have our own bona fide terrorists, our own homegrown al-Qaeda terrorist, Omar Khadr, who was cut a check in 2016 for 10 and a half million bucks, essentially for hurt feelings. Um, where was the war on terrorism then? No, no, no. You see, the liberals only care about terrorism if it is, let's say, a men's drinking club like the Proud Boys um, <laughs> or, um, you know, or convoy protesters who disagree with the government's intrusion into their lives after they've had enough after two and a half years. But the liberals will, of course, return money to UN agencies that are, are uh, credibly accused of funneling. Uh, money to Palestinian terrorists who, you know, kidnap or kidnap, you know, Jewish kids at a at a bus stop or yeah. set incendiary explosive devices at a bus stop. That's fine. That's fine. That's humanitarian. Yes. But if you incidentally happen to be a boisterous conservative part of the largest human rights movement this country has ever seen and likely the most effective opposition Justin Trudeau has ever experienced in his seven idiotic years at the helm of this country, um, terrorist completely put you on a watch list, seize your bank account. Unbelievable. Uh, Sheila, it's coming to an end. It feels like to me it's been going on forever. Um, the yes. report, uh, <laughs> the the report will be submitted, I believe, in the month of February, if I recall. Yes. Um, are is this commissioner? Is he going to give this a fair shake, or is this, as they say in the UK, is this going to be a stitch up? I'm not sure. Up until um, early this week, I thought. Justice Rouleau has been very fair. And yes, it does feel like this has been going on forever. I said the other day on the live stream, Bill Blair's testimony made me feel like a yogurt tube that had just been sucked dry. It just sucked the energy right out of my body. Um, but um, uh, up until earlier this week, I would have said yes. I would have said, you know what, this is completely fair. Whatever happens, happens. Um, but I, I don't feel that anymore. And the reason I don't feel that is um, the lack of just the inability of Justice Rouleau to rule on uh, motions being brought forward by the convoy lawyers in a reasonable amount of time. He should not have left certain rulings until midweek of the last week. I was in the commission two days this week. And so I saw this happening in real time. And you can tell when it happens. The federal government is dumping hundreds, sometimes thousands of pages on these lawyers just hours but and sometimes minutes before the government witness is set to speak. So how do you craft questions on evidence you just received that you haven't even read yet? And I saw it happen in real time. For example, with Bill Blair, the government was giving them documents while Bill Blair was testifying. 
How do you how do you ask him about evidence that you just got while he's currently on the stand and you only have five minutes to ask? And you know, the convoy lawyers were complaining about this, saying this is crazy. And also the federal government is redacting things they shouldn't be redacting. They're redacting things for cabinet confidentiality when they are not communications between two cabinet ministers. It's staffers talking to staffers. That's not covered under cabinet confidentiality. The federal government shouldn't be redacting these things. And Justice Rouleau sort of left this go until it's too late. And the, the federal government isn't just doing this to the convoy lawyers. The OPP lawyer stood up and complained. Like he said, I'm going to do my best to ask questions, but I literally got these documents hours ago, like in the middle of the night before the morning of. Um, and so the federal government I knew would be sneaky, crafty, do whatever they could to um, not be as transparent as possible, but they're playing games with evidence and it's unfair. And uh, up until this time, like I said, I thought Rouleau was fair, but leaving these decisions on these evidentiary issues until the last minute, how do you undo weeks of these document dumps? There's evidence that the lawyers just could not read that could have excoriated the government and it just it's just sitting there now. No, Sheila, I, I would argue that's beyond unfair. That's egregious. In fact, I think I'm not a lawyer, but I think that's actually borderline contempt. You are making a mockery of this inquiry by doing that kind of garbage. Any fair commissioner would say, I, you know, regardless of where you stand personally on the issue, the idea of dispensing documents as the witness is speaking, I mean, that's zero notice, right? It's negative notice. That's an outrage, and why Rollo is letting this slide is despicable. I'm sorry, there's no other word I have. Well, and the thing is, we can't we we can't really think about this as a courtroom. Although Rollo, in his other life, is a judge, he doesn't have the power of contempt in this courtroom. And uh, you know, in a courtroom, you do have evidence rules. You know, if 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 one side gets disclosure as court is going on, the judge will immediately call for a continuance and everybody takes a break. You come back months later sometimes. That's not what's happening here. These poor lawyers. I mean, we, like I said, I saw it happen in real time. Bill Blair's testifying. All of a sudden, the lawyers, you can see that they're sitting like a foot in front of me. All of a sudden, their body language changes. They all <laughs> open up their laptops. And I can see them on their screens going through the same, I mean, like one is taking one stack, another one's taking another stack, and they're just doing their best to try to get through hundreds of pages of text messages. And it's like going through an access to information document. A lot of it is nothing, but in there is somebody threatening to run over you with a tank. Unbelievable. Well, Sheila, you've done an excellent job keeping a keen eye on these proceedings, and I want to wish you a happy weekend. Oh, and by the way, on Saturday, I will be seeing you in the city of Calgary yep. for Rebel News Live, the Calgary edition. I don't know if there's any tickets uh, still available, but there are folks. There are. There are. Well, here you go. Uh, get yourself an early Christmas present. Come out and see uh, your favorite Rebels, including some incredible uh, guests that we have lined up. And she'll ever tell you, I love going back to Alberta. Did ever tell you that mm -hmm. in 1985, I rode a bull at the Smoky Lake Rodeo? <laughs> I think maybe I did. Right? We're all the bull in this story, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs>
Anyways, I look forward to seeing you there, and I look forward to seeing our uh, viewers who have bought tickets there as well. You have yourself a great weekend, Sheila. I will, and special thanks to the team that has been working basically around the clock in Ottawa. Some of our uh, youngest, newest journalists have really been doing phenomenal work there. They're yes. in that commission room every single day, and our two guys working behind the scenes, Kian Simone and Guillaume Moi, uh, I was there with them for two days, and it's early morning to late at night. Yep. One time I came down from the Airbnb, my bedroom, uh, just to get um, – a bubbly water, to be honest with you, and they're still working. And uh, wow. the, the hardest working team in journalism, really. And I'm just so proud of the work that they're doing. And if you want to see the work that they're doing, it's at truckercommission.com. You got it. Thank you so much, Sheila. Thanks, David. And that was Sheila Gunn-Reed in Ottawa. And she'll be, like I said, in Calgary on a Saturday for Rebel News Live, Calgary edition Get your tickets. As she said, there are still a few available. Keep it here, folks. More of Rebel Roundup to come right after this. For Rebel News, I'm Tamara Ugolini. And in case you didn't know, a team of rebels recently traveled to the World Health Summit 2022 in Berlin, Germany, where health professionals gathered to rub shoulders with the elites pushing the global health agenda forward. The global accord now being negotiated will underpin the global approach to epidemics and pandemics for decades and maybe even centuries to come. And that's why we call it generational agreement. The summit is a three-day Globocrat conference sponsored heavily by the pharmaceutical lobby and its corporate consultants which is complemented by the involvement of supposed philanthropists and non-state actors such as Bill Gates and McKinsey Consulting, who have special interests in manufacturing global health outcomes. We were on the scene for the full three days to gather an insider's glimpse into this conference riddled with non-state actors to see what was being discussed and what people within the health sector truly thought of the COVID-19 response. In these clips, I am going to share with you the thoughts that were shared with my colleague and myself, Alexa Lavoie, by an ICU doctor working on the ground in Berlin. The report was only made possible through your generous donations and support at rebelwho.com. At that special website, you can also search all of our previous reports from Berlin and stay up to date as we continue to publish even more. All right, so without further ado, here is that German ICU frontline doctor discussing how the public health response, like masking and lockdowns, were compromising and arguably continue to compromise the personal health of people. But medical professionals are too afraid to speak openly about it. Have a listen. The real thing about the World Health Summit is like the conversations with each other. Yes. Where you can talk freely. Yeah. Because if you put, would put me on the stage and you, you would ask me about what the winter is coming, what should I say? Like, uh, it's bad for people. They like. I, I wouldn't say they will get through it. How do I we only say the things which are accepted? Of course. Wow. If I was Bill Gates, like, why would he say, "Ah, oh, it's the vaccine for you. It's very more complicated." Nah. But it's not okay. We should not be like free to say what we want to say. No. If you talk about it, like openly like it, i think people talk about the important issues all the time like face to face yes and openly i think it's more like the politics and stuff. 
Well, yeah, we saw yeah, that we saw the, the, the political <laughs> choice. But should health and politics be together? I, 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 like, I think all of this is like just the good stuff. So, so good stuff in, in the bad, bad like, room. Yeah. Good stuff in the good room. It's like, only good words. Like, it, you, you will find in this, we need to have more equality, we need to have less poverty. Like, like all the good words, but like without the real issue, the real issue and the real truth, like just the good words, like all the speakers do. Well, there you have it, folks, from the good doctor himself. Apparently, the pandemic was never about following the so-called science. Remember that nugget? Rather, it's about, quote, politics and stuff end quote. Gee, my goodness. What did this doctor mean by that remark to begin with? And with more on this baffling puzzle, here is Tamara Ugolini, who flew all the way to Berlin along with some other rebels to try to get some answers to questions that the mainstream media dares not ask. Hey, Tamara, welcome to Rebel Roundup. How you doing there? Pretty good. Thanks for having me, David, as always. Always a pleasure. Now, Tamara, I think that was a fascinating quote by the doctor that the COVID-19 agenda is being driven by politics and stuff. I don't know what he means by stuff. But anyways, what do you think he meant by that bizarre remark? Well, you know, I've been questioning it since the onset, whether this was the whole COVID response was being driven by evidence-based science or political science. And so this just further confirms the fact that it was political science at play, nothing that was previously established. You know, there was a complete disregard of previously very well-established pandemic response plans that we had in place, especially here in Canada and each province and territory on its own as well. And so this really reinforces the fact that the response plans were based on <laughs> politics and polling rather than any sort of evidence-based medicine or, or evidence-based science. And Tamara, do you think you caught him in a, um, I, I don't know, a, a, a moment in which he wasn't guarded with his comments? In other words, if you had sat down in a studio interview with the lights on and the microphone right out there, would he have said something like that or would he be much more guarded with his words? Well, you know, a, a part that I left out of that interview was that we conducted these interviews, for lack of a better word, undercover. And so um, unbeknownst to the attendees, they were being recorded, and um, which is why we had to blur the faces, because there are some different laws in Germany that we need to be mindful of when we're releasing this footage, which is another reason why it's taken this long to get some of it out, because we've had careful review on most of the videos and interviews that were conducted. But certainly this was an off-the-cuff casual conversation with an ICU doctor in Germany who had obviously been on the front lines throughout the unfolding of the COVID pandemic. And I refer to it as a pandemic because of the way that the response was handled, not necessarily because of um, the virus itself. But definitely this was an unguarded, very casual conversation where um, there's there's more free thought and free expression, I think, than anything that were to be more scheduled and formal indeed. Yeah, and I find you really get the gold in these unguarded, unrehearsed moments. It was like 
oh my goodness, uh, Tamara, I can't remember her name, but before Dr. Kier Moore took over, uh, one of the top uh, medical health uh, necromancers, as our colleague Sheila Gunn-Reed likes to call them. Remember, she had that line uh, a, a more than a year ago where she said, uh, it was words to the effect of, uh, they give me these papers and tell me what to say. And mm-hmm. and I, I keep, I still have that question because I, I don't think it's ever been asked who is they? You know, I mean, you you uh, alluded to uh, evidence evidence based science versus political science. We forgot about door number three, weird science. But um, when she says they, it, was she talking about uh, her political masters? Yeah, I think that was Barbara Yaffe, if I remember correctly. Yes, thank you. And. Also, most recently, Kieran Moore had his teleprompter freeze when he was making this the new recommendation on masking. Uh, you can find I clipped it and posted it to my Twitter. So you can find that clip there where his teleprompter actually froze. And he instead of just kind of continuing on with what he was talking about, he just says, oh, my script, my my computer has frozen. And let's just give it a moment here. And then, you know, it recalibrates or it's fixed, whatever. RSV influenza and other respiratory infections. Sorry, the teleprompter stopped working. Can develop severe illness. And so it lends the question also who's writing his scripts because if it's not him, then you you would think if it were him, then he could continue to talk about what he's saying, you know, with with some off the, the cuff and off the cusp thoughts because he wrote his own script. But if it's not him writing the scripts, then of course he needs to stop and wait for the teleprompter to resume so that he knows what to say. You know, that's a brilliant observation, Tamara. I never thought of it in that, that context. But then again, it seems that uh, Dr. Moore, uh, he doesn't believe what he's saying or he doesn't believe what he's reading. He doesn't believe what the people who give him the script uh, are saying. And I say that because, as you know, going back a week Monday, he said he strongly urged all, A-L-L, all people to wear masks in an indoor setting. And then less than 72 hours after issuing that recommendation, not a mandate, not yet at least, there he is hobnobbing at a Toronto life party with the beautiful people. Nobody's got a mask on. Uh, it's an indoor setting. It's crammed to the rafters. And there's Dr. Moore, um, you know, kibitzing around maskless. And to me, Tamara, it was so blamed, I thought, that it was almost like giving the people of Ontario middle finger. Just three days ago, you said you strongly recommend this, and it's for the kids, of course, just like the teachers say when they go out on strike. And yet here you are completely defying your own recommendation. What are your thoughts? Yeah, classic more mingling maskless, I think, is what I titled (laughs) that right up when I when I discovered um, that he was at the Toronto Life event because they were celebrating their top, I believe it was top 50 influential Torontonians. And of course, more made the list for his brilliant COVID response. And (laughs) so certainly... Throughout the pandemic uh, pandemonium, we saw that Moore was certainly an influential member of things like coercive vaccine passports and these indiscriminate mask mandates. I think he was ranked number 12 on their 50 most influential list. And um, 
you know, on one hand, I appreciate that Moore was out mingling maskless because it shows that he's finally following the science and making, you know, a, a statement with, because actions speak louder than words, really, in my opinion. And so his actions were speaking that he didn't didn't believe in the words he was was speaking, which the craziest recommendation out of that press release, in my opinion, was when he told uh, parents if they were sniffly, they should mask in their home around their toddler and then to see him out with hundreds of people at a socialite event just obviously grossly counteracted everything that he said in that press release um so i think that on one hand it's it's a good thing to see him out there actually following the science that masks are useless and ineffective and we don't need them anymore um and arguably never did um, and on the other hand, it just speaks to more of the hypocrisy of the bureaucracy, which is an angle I take so often when I'm covering these public health bureaucrats and government officials. A hundred percent. And I would say if this man had integrity, um, Tamara, he would resign. Uh, there's no coming back from this. Uh, there's no way to come up with a bunch of weasel words to somehow suggest that, no, uh, that was okay for him to be in that party when this was exactly the kind of thing he was recommending Ontarians uh, all mask up about. And for that matter, I mean, even his political masters the next day on Tuesday, Tamara, including mm -hmm. Premier Ford, most of the MPPs weren't even wearing masks either. And to me, that means they simply don't believe in this BS. They don't believe that if I walk into an indoor setting without a mask, I'm going to get the COVID cooties and get very sick. So really, what should the rest of us uh, believe? So much for leading by example. But one last question, Tamara. Um, looking back at that uh, World Health Summit uh, in uh, retrospect, uh, what were some of the takeaways uh, you came away with uh, from Berlin? What were some of the things that stood out, good or bad, uh, given your attendance there? Yeah, well, the main thing was, and it's highlighted throughout the three different clips I've published thus far with that ICU doctor. So I broke them down into three separate videos to make it a little bit easier for the viewer to digest. Otherwise, it would have been such a long and drawn out video. And the main takeaway from me, which you can find in those videos, is that the the public health, or sorry, the medical professionals knew that this response would subject the general population to harm. They knew that indiscriminate mask mandates were a bad idea from the start. They knew that lockdowns were going to cause harm to the population at large, and they did not back them, but they were too scared out of fear of reprimand to come forward and speak those words to their colleagues or to their higher ups. And so they put their heads down and continued going about their business to, I guess, preserve their paycheck. Because as we saw, even especially here in Canada, any doctors that came out as dissidents were slandered, smeared, ridiculed, investigated, lost their licenses to practice, were kicked out of their, their jobs, their locations. Um, and so that really set a precedence for anyone who dared to speak out against the narrative. But now we're seeing, and we saw there uh, undercover, just having casual conversations that many people knew the damages that would be caused and recognize them now, but no one will speak up or out about it. 
And that's the most concerning thing to me. And, and again, you can watch the other clips that I have since published with this particular ICU doctor. And he even notes that these conversations and these conferences that were being held at the World Health Summit are fluffy surface scratchers. They don't dig deep into any of the real failures of the pandemic response and how to correct or adjust for those in the future. And then we also see that the WHO, by vote of its member states, is being strengthened. So this is really concerning heading into the future. And as they discuss, you know, future pandemics and other global health threats, and these, even this idea of having global health. Uh, yeah. So we really need to be mindful and empower individual physicians and medical professionals to speak out and denounce these collectivist ideals uh, as they're being discussed uh, without this fear of reprimand. And so to really protect whistleblowers, I think, is going to be an important step moving forward. No, 100 uh, percent, Tamara. And uh, you are right. It was all about preserving their nice six figure paychecks. Uh, all of which makes a mockery out of one of the sayings of the pandemic when it was at its height. We're all in this together. Yeah. And the check is in the mail. And hi, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. <laughs> Some of the biggest lies ever told. Tamara, great report. Thanks so much for joining me. You have a good weekend, my friend. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. And that was Tamara Ugolini in Coburg. Keep it here, folks. More of Rebel Roundup to come right after this. David Menzies for Rebel News here in Toronto. And folks, I'm standing outside the Chinese consulate. And, you know, pop music fans might recall that back in the 80s, there was an English band called China Crisis. And, you know, I think in the real world, in Canada of 2022, we're in a bit of a China crisis ourselves, aren't we? I'm speaking specifically of those Chinese police stations that are situated here in Canada. There are three in the greater Toronto area, one in Scarborough and two in Markham. And uh, we have been trying to find out how is this possible that the communist Chinese have law enforcement agents in our great dominion and what are they doing here and why is this being allowed now we reached out several times via email to CSIS and the RCMP none of our correspondence was returned so you may recall my camera woman Isabel and I we went to the RCMP detachment in Toronto back in September Here's how that turned out. Story on these three Chinese police detachments that are in the greater Toronto area. Now, two are in Markham and one is in Toronto. We're just trying to find out. Like we went, we found the address for one, but there was nobody home. Do you know where these other addresses are for these Chinese police detachments? Or no, I've never. It's the first time I hear about it. Oh, but, okay. But I, like I was, because like, we have a media RCMP person. And, yes. And I do have a direct email address. Oh, okay. If, and I, this is my business card here also. If, if you have any problem reaching out. Oh, I appreciate that. Because I, I don't think I had a name. I, it was just a, uh, so I'll reach out again, right? Yeah. It's just. Um, so I, I can't really help you out that much. Okay. So what followed, if you can imagine, folks, is a wait time of several weeks before finally somebody at RCMP Media Relations got back to us. And this is the response we received, quote, 
Good morning, David. We have received a request from our colleagues in Ontario. Please find our response below. The RCMP is investigating reports of criminal activity in relation to the so-called police stations. As the RCMP is currently investigating the incident, there will be no further comment on the matter at this time. End quote. Yeah, so forgive me if I don't think that response was very helpful or fruitful. But in the meantime, more troubling stories about China's influence in Canada have emerged. For example, Global News reported last week that China reportedly funded a clandestine network of at least 11 federal candidates who ran in the 2019 Canadian federal election. Uh, and there were other allegations of election interference in that campaign. By the way, uh, who were those 11 federal candidates? Well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and the uh, Liberal Party, they are crickets when it comes to that. On Monday, Quebec RCMP arrested a former Hydro-Quebec employee who allegedly obtained trade secrets from the utility to benefit the Chinese government. I mean, it's getting to be like a parody almost. It's getting to be so outrageous that it's hard to believe. In any event, I can't get any more information from the um, three so-called police stations we visited. One was a uh, Chinese Canada Business Association office, which was empty. One was a convenience store, if you can imagine. Somewhere that in this plaza, there is um, uh, police from China that are operating and another was a private residence. I know it sounds like something out of a Men in Black sequel. So I've come down here to the Chinese embassy to see if anyone is going to come on camera to at least tell us what the ostensible policy reason is for those Chinese police stations operating in our dominion. Yeah. Oh, hi, sir. Oh, my name is David Menzies with Rebel outside, News. Outside, please, sir. Why is that? Outside, please. I'm just trying to find sir, out where outside, the, why please. there's Chinese police outside, stations here. Outside, Excuse please. Me. Who Excuse are you? me, sir. Outside, please. I'm asking you politely. Can, who are you? My name is Alex. I'm security guard. Oh, can I see your security sir, license, please? They completely close to the public, so please. Yeah. Can I see your security license? Yes, of course, but okay, you then. you have to come back. Well, I've please, been standing sir. out there. No one's been. I will I, call police. You will? Okay. Yeah. Well, you have to show me your uh, security license. Yes, sir. of course, but outside. Okay, please. then. Well, can you just? Can, is there anyone there to answer why there are sir, Chinese please. police stations of in Canada? Of course. Can you can you go? You're going to answer that? Yes. Okay. Step back. Okay. This way. This way. All right. This is this is new. Doing a interview outside of uh, Iron Gate. Now you said you were going to show me your security license. Yes, of course. Thank you. This is my security license. Thank you, sir. Uh, yeah. So can my name. your documents. Um, well, my name's David Menzies. No, no. Can I see your documents, please? When you say documents. Uh, yes. Your, your driver license, any ID. Oh, I Do see. 
You know, this is funny. This is like a little piece of Beijing in Canada. Your Sir, papers, can please. You know, folks, I forgot to ask that security guard when he threatened to call police. Did he mean the Toronto Police Service or the Beijing Police Service? Because it would appear that both law enforcement agencies are active in Hogtown these days. As to why this is so, the mystery continues. And he wanted to see my driver's license? What was the deal with that? Absolutely baffling. In any event, you had plenty to say about communist cops plying their trade in the Dominion of Canada. 250 Sabre writes, You know, many of us know Trudeau and his band of lying fools are working hand-in-hand with the Chinese. Well, indeed, Sabre, look at the recent news in which there were allegedly 11 liberal candidates in the 2019 federal uh, election receiving funding from the Chinese government. This is apparently news to Prime Minister Blackface McGroper, by the way, even though CSIS claims the PM was briefed on this. Uh, Geez, maybe Justin, kind of like Roger Clemens, is misremembering certain details. What a joke. Dan Kunz writes, Trudeau is a sellout. Well, you know, Dan, I think there is some proverbial proof in the pudding regarding your statement. It was in 2013, I believe, that Trudeau openly admitted his admiration for the basic dictatorship of China when it comes to, you know, getting things done. Since our PM is so smitten by this communist regime, why would he be offended if commie cops were running around in Canada doing God knows what? What a disgrace and what a dereliction of duty. M. Rifle 223 writes, They have no right on Canadian soil. Trudeau has to be jailed and the Chinese need to be kicked out. Well, M. Rifle, I'll simply settle for the PM losing the next election whenever that's going to be. And believe me, that event cannot come soon enough, folks. But yes, talk about an affront to Canadian sovereignty. I mean, do you think that China would allow Canadian law enforcement agencies to carry out policing in their country? I think the odds of that happening would make even the most reckless gambler cringe. And finally, Junior A writes, You should be used to people not wanting to deal with you by now. Well, Junior A, of course I'm used to certain elements not wanting to deal with me. That doesn't mean I'm going to go away or bend the knee. Maybe that's why my favorite animal is the honey badger. But hey, if you're okay with a foreign nation like China operating police services in our country, well, why not visit Beijing and get the full meal deal? Have fun on that holiday. Yeah. Well, that wraps up another edition of Rebel Roundup. Thanks so much for joining us. Have yourselves a fantastic weekend. See you next week. And hey, folks, never forget, without risk, there can be no glory. Good night.